This is the full interview from a segment from the Overdrive radio and podcast program. For more information, go to drivenmedia.com.au. I went to the Shannon's Classic event, the first time since COVID that they held it at Sydney Motorsport Park. That is where they get together upwards of a thousand classic cars from car clubs all over the state and display them there for the public to come and see and then do great touring around on laps with old buses and a, a wonderful range of things. Anyway, I took the test car for that week, which was a new 2022 Peugeot 3008. But I saw a car there that I just had to park mine beside and do a bit of a comparison. It was a Peugeot 163. It had been beautifully restored by Brian Jubb, who joins us on the line now. G'day, Brian. Hi, uh, David. What is the car you restored? 1923 Peugeot 163. It's a delivery van uh, that I I uh, came up with. Um, I'm uh, not so young anymore, and <laughs> the car was just a heap of parts, uh, and the body was rusted well beyond saving. So it became uh, because I'm uh, like 76 now. Um, and this was in 2016 I got the parts, and I thought to myself, what am I going to be able to restore in my lifetime? Anyway, uh, I decided to do the panel van because it was a roadster before, and there was no way I would have been able to make a full uh, steel body. It's got a, a lovely little cabin in the front there. It's not very wide, is it? No, not at all. If both of us sat in the front, would that be a bit of a battle? You wouldn't be able to do it. And, of course, you've just made like a van out the back. Beautiful timber work. It's it's lined with timber? Yes, it is. It's the Moranti-type timbers that they would have used are very, very expensive and extremely difficult to get. Hmm. So I made the body out of marine ply, 18mm thick marine ply, and just laminated it all together with screws and glue, and then I could cut the shapes as I required with minimum waste. They did actually make little vans like that? Oh, yes, they did. Not many, though? Not many at all. This model, they've only made a few thousand in total, and the uh, Peugeots of the time tended to be the smaller 172s. They're like little Austin 7s. You really had to be small to fit into those, <laughs> and that was the main production. The, they tended to make the bigger ones probably more for commercial use, and they came to Australia just as a bare chassis, and you got a colonial body fitted for your own purpose here. That was what it was like a lot around that time, wasn't it? That is, of course, how Holden started. They got yes. a lot of mainly General Motors chassis yes. and built on it. So that, that's how Peugeots were brought into Australia then as well. Most of them, I believe. Of course, there's always a couple of personal imports, but mostly they were came as uh, chassis only. The engine, what sort of engine does your little 1923-163 Peugeot have? Well, it's a solid lump of cast iron, and it's all serviced through the bottom. There's no separate heads, but it has access for the cam and the overhead, uh, not overhead valve, the side valves, but you've 
come out of large plugs oh. which hold the spark plugs, but you screw them out and that's how the valves drop down in and there's a side plate to do the valve springs and the clips. But all the rest is a solid block of cast iron and just a flat aluminium plate goes on the bottom just to keep the oil in. Does that make it easier to manufacture or harder or does it avoid having a gasket between the head and the block, doesn't it? It does sound like it'd be easy, but the castings, I think I counted 14 plugs, which are 22 millimetre diameter plugs all over the, to get all the sand out when they'll finish the casting. So the carburetor bolts, there's no manifolds, so the carburetor Zenith, the French Zenith Carby side draft, just bolts straight on the side. And the exhaust pipe screws, there's a thread on the back of the head that you screw the exhaust on, so there's no exhaust manifold. (laughs) And there's no water pump, oil pump, or that. It's all thermo siphon water, splash oil, and drip feed petrol. The drip feed petrol. We're used to a carburetor that sort of mixes it carefully, I suppose, and sucks it into the engine. This just sort of drips it in. Is that is that the way it works? It actually runs down, but it's connected to the... uh, petrol tank you just turn the valve on Uh, if you don't turn the petrol off when you're finished you come back and you've got an empty fuel tank so it just keeps running it's supposed to have a needle and seat and so on but it doesn't seal properly so she's pretty pretty basic way it works and the cooling of it how does it cool the engine well it has a leather belt off the crankshaft which spins the propeller right and uh, it draws air through the radiator. It's one of those brass radiators with a honeycomb. Lucky that it still works per- perfectly fine because you'd never be able to get another one. But as the motor spins, it just draws air through the front. And after it's been warm for a, a few minutes, the thermosiphon just starts. If you take the radiator cap off, you can actually see the ru- water rushing up over the through the top of the radiator. It's quite surprising. How many gears has it got? It's got four forward oh. and, and plus reverse. But the strange part about the gearbox is that you it's quite reverse to what you normally think. You pull the gear stick towards you, push it forward, and that's first. But you lift the button and push it forward again, and that's reverse. Oh. Now, that gets very complicated when you're driving because you're not sure whether you're in, out, or... <laughs> and so on. I guess it doesn't have much synchromesh. Uh, none. <laughs> <laughs> it's a full crash gearbox, um, and it and exactly that's what it does. That was a time, of course, wasn't it, where you had to understand the mechanics of it. You had to understand the revs of the engine yes. in order to change gear. Yes, the more I drive it, the vehicle, it, it, it's getting better. I haven't driven a crash gearbox probably since the early Holden days, well, it had a crash first gear, but where you had to learn to double shuffle to go into first. Mm. Well, this is double shuffle for the lot. You know, we've been spoilt for quite a while, so it's just a matter of getting back into the habit of listening to the engine revs. Yes, you have to be much closer to an understanding than the Monmon. I mean, manual gearboxes are very rare these days at the best of times, yet they are, of course, full of synchromesh. What about the ratios? You say you drive it around a lot. What's its top speed? Well, it does between 60 and 65 k's an hour. 
uh, flat out. <laughs> so it wasn't designed for beautiful roads. I mean, you've got to think of France after the war, and that's what it was designed for. The First World War, I mean. <laughs> Non-existent roads. And what about first gear then? Very low, extremely low. And uh, second and third are quite low, and there's a significant gap into uh, fourth gear. <sighs> so it's a climber. A climber type gearbox. Also, then third to fourth, you really got to rev it out in third and not be going up too much of a hill. Yes, I presume before you drop it into fourth gear. That's right. Yes. When I was left the car park and went up to the top of the hill where the car trailers were parked. Yeah. I toddled up there in top and then back to third, back to second, back to first, and it only just pulled up that hill. It probably wasn't warm enough. But I only just got up that giant hill at the back of oh. Eastern Creek in first gear. Uh, I was rather surprised that it's... If I had known it was going to be so steep, I would have taken a better run at it. <laughs> but in first gear, there was no question of it. It was going to make it. It was always going to make it. To be back in first, I was surprised. I did follow you up the first hill towards the gate. You then turned off to the left. Yeah, and that's where the big hill was up there. It's a time of motoring, wasn't it, that you really had to be far more aware. My first car was a Morris Minor. Yes. I was labouring my way through uni up at round Mittagong, and I used to drive it back to the caravan park, and I used to fang around a corner so that I only had to go back to third gear on the hill yes. going up, and sometimes if it wasn't going well, I went back to second. I went around there in a, a more modern golf and I didn't think there was much of a hill at all. No, that, that's... Well, the vehicles have improved out of sight. Look, at my age, we grew, grew up with really a, like um, pre-war cars. Mm. And I, I had a 1933 Dodge uh, Coupe oh. for 20-something years. And, and it was a, a big six-cylinder, like you hardly slowed down for anything on that. Mm. But again... Uh, the gearing is, uh, they're flat out at what was 50 mile an hour, which is only 80 k's an hour. So life's completely different. Yeah. But the tyres, like you go around the corner and they drift and squeam and carry on, or you pull up to a stop sign and you skid past the line. It's just a total different business from the good old days. <laughs> I noticed they were very narrow tyres. Very narrow, yes. Tire technology has changed everything. It was the late 70s when the radial tune suspension type things came, changed everything. If I may go back to your earlier days, of the uh, was a Dodge Coupe. Yes. Did that impress the ladies, Brian? Oh, <laughs> well, I think I was dreaming is, is the answer to that. <laughs> when did you finally finish it? You bought it? Oh, the uh, Peugeot? Yeah. In 21. Like the beginning of nine, uh, 2021, I finished that, but we were locked in with COVID, so I couldn't take it out any to the, any shows or anything. So it's just sat there. This is about the third time I've been out since the restoration, just because of bad weather and... COVID and that, yeah. Yes. It has only elementary dials on the dashboard, doesn't it? Oh, what does it have? Like, it doesn't have a fuel gauge or anything. And oh. It just has a, a speedo, trip meter, an amp meter, and that's it. You wouldn't have had any warning lights or things like that? No, no. 
the warning for the water is the steam coming out of the top. You you know that. Yeah. Or if it's got other problems, it's smoke. So <laughs> that's about the extent of it. I love the fact that you guys are maintaining that heritage, that you're letting us have an understanding. I, I saw it with the guy who had the 1953 Porsche tractor oh yes, yes i'd interviewed him some years ago and we, we're catching up with him as well but the point about it was the the kids love it yes now the parallel i have with that is if you go to a, along a country road and it, it shows you a, a railway level crossing it typically has a, a silhouette of a steam train yes there's not a young kid around who's likely to have seen one in real life yet it has that a romance and a sort of element to it. Do the kids love your little Peugeot? Yes, they do. I'm, I'm rather, I toot the klaxon horn. It's a genuine French klaxon horn that came with the car. What was amazing, while I bought a trailer load of parts and I said to the guy I bought off, I said, is everything here? And he said, oh, I think so. And uh, the only thing that was missing was the carbon joint, which is like a universal joint between the tail shaft and the gearbox. All the rest uh, was there, which is absolutely amazing, uh. like the horn, the headlights, and so on. The taillight was missing, so I got a one off a motorcycle, a vintage motorcycle, which looked the same. But pretty well otherwise, I've been lucky enough, the critical parts, like the brass windscreen and so on, that came in the package of the parts. Mind you, they all needed restoration, but... To have all the parts, but, but saying that, it didn't have the body. Like, I had to remake the mud guards, the doors, running boards, and so on. But I did a TAFE course at Campbelltown TAFE when they were still available to do that, and in um, a bit of guidance from the teachers and in um, the use of their gear. And before you know it, 100 hours of tuition, I've got all the bits made at the TAFE. Was that automotive tuition or was it that, I mean, you've got some beautiful timber work there. Oh, yeah, that was at home in my driveway after that. But no, no, sorry, I did the timber first. But in 2017, I got into the Campbelltown TAFE and did a full year there just one night a week with similar minded guys. It was probably 15, 20 guys doing their all, all their old cars. A lot of them had been there for a long time. I don't think they were serious about finishing, but mm. but I was on a pretty tight deadline. I wanted to finish this thing. So in 2017, I did the metal work, and then the next year I got a bit of guidance to paint it. Well, it's only painted in the bonnet, the cowl, and the doors. The rest is all polished timber. And the sheeting on the outside is 6 mil marine ply mm. and just done many coats it, um, there's a fair amount of work in it. Oh, yeah. All little brass screws all lined up. If you want the finish, you've got to go to the detail, and it takes a long time. And that's the way it is, you know. The security of the van is not up to modern standards. You had a Peugeot key. It really didn't have much complexity to it. Not at all. <laughs> so I think a little bit of bent wire might work. <laughs> But there were two keys, wasn't there? There's two keys. Yeah. What the intriguing thing about it is, and I was confused when I first saw it, it was the, the vintage Peugeot sign. The P is back to front. 
it's a squirrely sort of a figure P. Mm. And the the one that's fixed permanently in the dashboard is only the parking lights and uh, headlights. And that's all it does, but it doesn't come out. And uh, in the uh, other switch, which are just basically it's from the magneto, and it just earths it out, and it's a similar key, but it's just got the tiny little lug hanging down uh, off the round main centre. It, it's tiny, yes. And it's just one lug. And it's one lug, yes, right. So it's, she's fairly complex. <laughs> uh, not really at all. But you wouldn't take it because you wouldn't know how to start the damn thing in the first place because with the foot starter, the clutch, the way it operates, it's a multi-plate clutch as well, and it all runs in sump oil. Now, I, I don't know what it's like in comparison, but it's certainly awkward to coordinate. Has it got a lot of travel to it? Uh, yes, a fair amount. And, and the throttle is in the middle of the pedals. So if you're driving a normal car, your natural is the throttle is to the right. Mm. And it's taken a while to learn to, if I go for the brake, not to push the throttle harder. Yes. Which is a strange reaction because your panic is to go to the middle and hit it, which is the throttle, which I've done a couple of times. And it's, and you think, oh, my God, I'm in more trouble. And then you've got to think, oh, the brake's over there. So she's a bit confusing. So if anyone got it going, it's highly likely they're going to have an accident because yep. your natural reflexes don't to fit the, the, the setup that we got here. It's like pushing the brake pedal with your left foot that you're used to pushing a clutch to the floor. Yes. And when you touch the brakes, sometimes you hit it hard. You talked about the brakes. <laughs> what brakes? A full set of ventilated discs, is it? Yeah, ventilated discs all round, that's right. <laughs> not. No, uh, I'm afraid it's not quite like that. But it's only got uh, drum brakes on the rear, and they're all rod, mechanical rod driven. And what is interesting about the rear brakes is it has four brake pads in the back. Two are for the foot brake, and two of the same size, identical size, go to the handbrake. So the idea to stop it, if you need to, is you put your foot on the brake and pull the handbrake on at the same time, and that gives you double braking. No brakes on the front wheels at all. And even with that extra boost from the handbrake, it still doesn't stop very well either. So it's all a matter of being damn careful. Well, I love that. I love the fact that it, it has something that shows the evolution of the car. We We've seen it in recent times being perfected to the nth degree. There there were fundamental decisions being made early on. Well, you have to think, this was released in 1918 after the First World War. So France must have been in an absolute mess to suddenly change to manufacture and make cars. I think they've done a very good job considering the timing. With this Model 163, they ran it until 1924, uh, unchanged. I guess that that was the times. Like they didn't have the time to develop m much at all, and there wasn't much demand for cars. Like for the public, it, uh, you would have had to been very rich to buy one anyway at the time. That's for sure. But it was also a critical part of re-establishing, isn't it? It was they had some vans there that you know it had to do with oh yes the commercial and the practical and the I guess the farming and so on yes of 
getting a country back on its feet. Yes. The only one that I actually saw in the museum, I saw it on the computer, but it's in the museum. It was an original van like mine, and that's where I got the idea from, and it was a bread uh, delivery van. So clearly that's, that was what we're talking about. You, you needed the commercial delivery van to get the food supplies around to the people. When I saw it on the computer, I just said, wow, this is what I need to build. It's the exact model and so on. So what I did was got all of the photos I could, could, could get, and there was about 10 of them, and I reproduced them, and then I uh, scaled them out and measured them into the car and so on and so on. So I basically uh, reproduced the replica of the original car that's in the museum. The one in the museum has not been restored. It's just been dragged out from somewhere. Still in, well, it's tired, but it's still complete. And the photos of the seats and the dash, uh, you know, all of the bits and pieces of the car, the rear of it and so on, I pretty well copied. Um, I was able to get good enough photos to scale it all out and work it out. So I'm very pleased that it, how well it came out considering. Brian, this has been lovely. I often think that people see classic cars as just um, hot rods and a few sort of souped-up vehicles often presented in ways that they weren't as they were originally built. You've managed to maintain and, through wonderful dedication, produce or replicate this glorious example with all its idiosyncrasies back from the early 20s. Brian, it was uh, lovely to be there. I, I had been testing a Peugeot van, but I didn't have it that day. If I had have known, I might have uh, swapped the order around and turned up with a van beside it, but maybe we might do that at a later date. Brian, thank you again, and thank you very much for your time. Right, thank you, David, for the chance to have a chat. And that was Brian Jubb, who has restored a 1923 Peugeot 163 van, a panel van, has the word Peugeot cycles down the side. It has a wonderful sense of memory and history, and it was a great example at the Shannon's Classic. Overdrive is a radio and podcast program featuring road tests, interviews and features on motoring and transport. More information is available at drivenmedia.com.au and podcasts on Spotify or iTunes.